0: From the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The H, this is Inside Politics from Please Explain. I'm Rachel Clun, filling in for Jacqueline Mailey. It's Friday, November 3. On Saturday afternoon, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will touch down in Beijing for an official visit with Chinese President Xi Jinping.
1: Fresh from his visit to the United States, the Prime Minister is now preparing to move on to his next mission, a trip to China from Saturday...
0: It's the first time in six years that an Australian leader has travelled to China. And it's an important symbolic step in the defrosting of China-Australia relations after they entered a deep freeze at the start of the pandemic. A diplomatic dispute has intensified between China and Australia. It started with Canberra calling for an international independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 last week. In response, China placed effective trade embargoes on about $20 billion worth of Australian exports. Gloves are off in Australia's trade dispute with China, with Beijing today slapping a huge tariff on our wine exports, putting billions of dollars worth of sales in doubt. The government... But since last year's federal election, those tensions have started to ease. Foreign ministers Penny Wong and Wang Yi in Beijing. Meeting for the third time in six months to repair a fractured relationship. Today, Chief Political Correspondent David Crow and North Asia Correspondent Eric Bagshaw on what this means for relations between the two countries. Thanks for joining me, David and Eric.
1: Good to be talking again. Great to be with you, Rachel.
0: Eric, Anthony Albanese will be arriving in Beijing tomorrow. It's been six years since an Australian Prime Minister has travelled to China. So just how big a deal is this visit?
2: Well, a lot's changed in six years. Uh, The Australia-China relationship just a year or two ago had never been in a worse position. In the space of, you know, let's say 18 months or so, the Albanese government has managed to probably get it back to a more stable footing. But it is not going to return to the same place that it was uh, when Tony Abbott last visited Beijing. Those were the heady days of $200 billion plus in trade, you know, a warm relationship, one that even at one stage included a potential extradition agreement between Australia and China, a piece of legislation that is now unthinkable. Since then, we've seen foreign interference legislation, uh, we've seen trade strikes, calls for a COVID-19 inquiry, and the detention of multiple Australians in China. So the relationship has changed dramatically. And as far as we can tell, um, this trip is really about getting the two sides talking again in a way that respects each other's interests.
0: And this visit has been much speculated about, David. There have been whispers and talks of an official leader's visit to China for some time. Why is it happening now?
1: The timing is quite deliberate uh, in the sense that there have been quite a few global summits that have been held. Through the course of this year, Anthony Albanese has spoken to the president of China, Xi Jinping, at events like the G20 summit earlier, and that cleared the way for a face-to-face meeting in China but also I think that Australia managed the optics of this very carefully because, as we know, uh, Anthony Albanese is only just back from a visit to the White House. He makes a point often that he's had nine meetings with President Joe Biden. The most recent of this, those meetings included the welcome on the south lawn of the White House, the meeting in the Oval Office, meeting with Cabinet ministers and uh, lunch at the State Department as well as a state dinner at the White House. So the optics are pretty deliberate. Australia has confirmed its alliance with the United States, made some forward movement on the AUKUS submarine pact. At the same time, it's prepared for this visit to Beijing. And it's only after those discussions with Joe Biden that Anthony Albanese is, is now having this meeting really at the heart of Chinese power in Beijing.
0: As you just said, David, you know, this China trip comes off the back of a very recent trip to the US and the Prime Minister told US officials he was clear-eyed about the threat posed by China. So I'm keen to get your thoughts, both of you, on how that will affect the upcoming meetings.
1: I think it sets uh, the scene for the meetings pretty well because it's clear that it's in Australia's interest to have a stabilisation in the relationship with China. It's also in America's interest to know that relations with China are improving, not deteriorating. There are lots of sources of friction. But we know that Joe Biden is going to be meeting Xi Jinping in San Francisco on the sidelines of the APEC summit. And that's only around November 12, right? So that's not that far away. So I think it's good to see this visit by the Australian leader in the context of broader global efforts, really, to stabilise relations with China, to remove sources of friction uh, and that's been something that the Australian government's been doing over the last eighteen months, especially on the trade front. We read a lot about the uh, removing trade barriers. When Anthony Albanese came to office, he visited Tokyo, met Joe Biden, and the leaders of Japan and India. And one of his first comments was that he would go to Beijing at some point. He was happy to have a meeting with Xi Jinping, but he wanted trade sanctions removed. And so, really, that's been one of the conditions from the Australian side in any effort to have a meeting. And generally, there's been some success there. There's been the removal or the promise of removal of trade sanctions or restrictions of some kind on wine. Things have improved on the exports of other Australian goods, ranging from uh, barley to other agricultural products. I think there are still concerns about some restrictions on things like lobsters. But on the whole, the situation has greatly improved. However, there's still clear friction. It was only you know, a week or so ago that Chinese vessels were basically intimidating Philippine vessels, trying to resupply an outpost on one of those contested reefs in the South China Sea. So that, well, you could call it aggression really from China towards its neighbours in that region is still a source of concern. It's a source of concern for Joe Biden. It's a source of concern for Anthony Albanese. Those issues are still on the agenda, even though there is this positive movement on trade.
2: Just on the, the timing of the visit and the, the background in the US, as Anthony Albanese was leaving Washington, you know, they were preparing to welcome Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, to a meeting with Anthony Blinken. So these great powers, and they are the great powers in the world, are not only talking to each other, but almost working and negotiating around each other. They know it's in their interest to talk. Australia, even though Albanese is reluctant to say that Australia is somehow a negotiator or a facilitator in that relationship, you can bet that both the Chinese side in Beijing and the American side in Washington will be passing messages to the Prime Minister to relay them to the other side. And that can run the gamut of national security, the South China Sea, Taiwan, Um, issues about arbitrary detention. I think the optics of this trip are going to be very interesting because we saw the full Guard of Honour, the military band, the the drums playing at the White House, all the spectacle of a US state visit. We are not going to see Anthony Albanese walking along the PLA military line outside Tiananmen Square. I think the officials there have organised for a meeting to take place indoors Um, in the Great Hall of the People. We're told it's November, it's going to be cold. But the potential pushback on the optics of Albanese walking along a Chinese military line, as many other world leaders have done in Beijing in recent times, would have been really challenging for Canberra. And I think they've managed to avoid that in this particular visit.
0: Foreign Minister Penny Wong is also going to China, and she said earlier this week that she would take any opportunity to make representations on behalf of Chinese-Australian writer Dr. Yang Hengjun. He's been detained in China for more than four years. Eric, what do you think could happen there?
2: Well, the Australian government has been making representations to the Chinese government for a long time on Yang Hengjun. He's been there for really almost five years now. We saw a really powerful letter from his sons written to the Prime Minister. The honest truth is they haven't really made any inroads. There was a tactical decision made uh, about a year or so or more ago to split the cases of Chang Lei and Yang Hengjun. They advocated publicly for Chang Lei, and then when they talked about Yang Hengjun, they made sure they did it as a separate case. That's because the reality is his case is more complicated. Uh, He has publicly uh, been very critical of the Chinese government in a way that Chang Lei has not. Uh, He has been a pro-democracy activist, he also has a past working for the Ministry of State Security in China many decades ago. They recognise it as a much more challenging case. And so negotiating him out of there on what are, by all accounts, spurious national security charges uh, has been really challenging. I think of all the Australians, and a reminder, there are about 60 Australians or so detained in China, most of them on drugs charges. Yang Hengjun is the most likely to next be released. But is also for that reason a really powerful diplomatic pawn for China. I mean, this is arbitrary detention. They've used it very successfully in the past against places like Canada uh, and Japan, for that matter. They are don't let someone go lightly. And as we've seen in the Australian case, the Australian government might well argue that it does not operate with China on a transactional basis. But there is no way that Beijing is letting Australian citizens go and not expecting anything in return.
0: David, you're going on this trip to China. Besides making a case for Dr Young, is there anything Australia wants to get out of this trip? What do you expect to see?
1: I expect to see a lot of ceremony, and I expect to see a lot of caution from the Australian side on specific things that they would be seeking from Beijing or even specific things that Beijing would be seeking from us. And I think that's a very wise approach from the Australian government because I think very early on, as soon as the idea of a visit to Beijing was aired, I think Anthony Albanese was careful not to get himself into a situation where he was locking in a visit and surrounding it with expectations that he must get an outcome of some kind. For instance, if he'd done this... uh, visit or had raised the idea of this visit six months ago or a year ago, there would have been heightened expectations that he would have had to have returned from Beijing with some concessions on trade. That's not the case here because a lot of those trade obstacles have been overcome sort of with quiet diplomacy over the last year. The worst thing, I think, for Anthony Albanese would be to go to Beijing with an expectation that he must return with an outcome, because that's exactly the scenario that gives Beijing leverage over him.
0: So it sounds like in the whole a largely symbolic meeting of the two countries. But what about China, Eric? They've been pressing, for example, for membership of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP. Why does China want in and are they likely to use this or these meetings to make their case?
2: Absolutely. The CPTPP, which is perhaps the most unwieldy acronym in world trade, um, is China's ultimate goal. You know, It sees that Trans-Pacific Partnership as its crowning achievement as a large trading nation. It would bring down substantial tariffs right across the board, across a dozen member countries, right around the Pacific Rim. China, and America, actually, are the only two members of those Pacific countries that are really not members. Trump pulled America out uh, while he was in office. So China wants in on the CPTPP. It has told every one of its partners, its um, rivals, places like Japan and South Korea, that it wants in. Australia was the major thing standing in the way of its ascension, because it was the most obvious and public example of trade strikes. You know, we had lobsters sitting on tarmacs. uh, We had coal sitting on ships, wine barrels, uh, you know, essentially blocked for three years from arriving in China. It was such a visceral and obvious trade embargo situation because of disputes over human rights and national security that no member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership could in good conscience admit China into such an agreement. And now, one by one, those trade sanctions have been lifted, and somewhat surprisingly, perhaps the language Australia is using around the trade Pacific Partnership and China's um, potential admission has softened only slightly. And it is very subtle, but it has gone from being no prospect of China ever joining the Trans Pacific Partnership to a, a sort of somewhere between no comment to the possibility of. Australia not opposing China joining the Trade Pacific Partnership, which was reported by the South China Morning Post last week.
0: Well, it's going to be very interesting to see the reporting from both of you over this trip. Thanks so much for your time, Eric.
2: Great to be with you, Rachel. See you in Shanghai, Eric. See you, mate.
0: David, I want to turn to talk about Israel and how the situation there is playing out politically here. Earlier this week, six former Australian prime ministers issued a joint letter condemning Hamas and expressing their support for Israel and Jewish Australians. Can you tell me a bit about the letter, who was behind it, and why do you think they decided to come out with it now?
1: Well, a big motivating force behind the letter was the the fact that there are a lot of uh, demonstrators on the streets in Australia. Showing support for this Palestinian people who are well many are on the West Bank, but many are in the Gaza Strip and in Gaza City uh, suffering from either actual attacks or the threat of imminent ground invasion by Israeli forces, and so with those demonstrators speaking up for the Palestinian people, I think there was a, a sense that somebody needed to make the point about I guess the, the problems on both sides of this dispute, and in particular emphasise the initial attack by Hamas on innocent people in Israel that really has been seen by the people of Israel as an act of war. And Josh Friedberg, former treasurer, uh, was a key player in getting the letter written. Malcolm Turnbull was also heavily involved in getting the letter letter written. And that's where we see six uh, former prime ministers agreeing on a joint statement that emphasised the incredible pain for Uh, innocent people in Israel, but also had that note about uh, the civilian deaths, the deaths of innocent people on the Palestinian side as well, and so it was quite a measured response. It is interesting that Paul Keating, former PM, didn't sign up to it. Uh, I think Malcolm Turnbull arranged uh, to smooth over some of the differences between the former leaders to make sure that the letter reflected a consensus position. And that's not a common thing, not an easy thing to achieve. Uh, And it's not common in Australian life where six former PMs make a statement like that. But that's basically the story behind that statement.
0: I also want to ask you about Australia's recent decision to abstain from voting at the UN General Assembly on a humanitarian truce. That's the first step to a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. That resolution was passed with 120 countries in support. 14 countries against and 45 abstaining. So why do you think Australia wouldn't have supported that motion and what do you think it can tell us about the Albanese government's thinking right now?
1: Well, the government's position is to try and, uh, I guess, show a sense of balance between the, these uh, terrible conflicting forces in the Middle East. But the basic problem from the Australian point of view with that resolution was the lack of any forceful condemnation of Hamas for the initial attack on innocent civilians in Israel. And without that element, it wasn't a statement that the Australian side could support, because right from the beginning, Anthony Albanese and the government and Penny Wong as foreign minister have been very clear in their condemnation of the terrorist attack by Hamas that really triggered what we're now seeing. And for all the arguments about the scale And the proportionality of the response from the Israeli side, any statement from the Australian point of view, has to begin with a condemnation of what Hamas did in the first place.
0: Well, as you just said, the tone is really important in this debate. And it seems to be very complex, especially for the government internally, given the variety of viewpoints within the party room. How tough is that job?
1: Incredibly difficult, because we've seen situations where clearly Anthony Albanese is... um, condemning the loss of any innocent civilian life. Every innocent civilian life matters, is what he says. He said that at his press conference with Joe Biden at the White House just the other day. So it's a very consistent message from Anthony Albanese. But he's got members of the caucus who would see things more from the point of view of the Israeli Defence Force and the Israeli people. But he's also got members of the caucus who are speaking up for the innocent lives lost on the Palestinian side. And of course, we saw that with Ed Husick, Western Sydney MP, who made that point very clearly. Anne Ali, the Western Australian MP uh, with an Egyptian heritage, she made that point very strongly as well. But we're also seeing it from MPs who aren't particularly invested in the issue through personal heritage, but they represent communities in Western Sydney that feel very strongly about you know the horror about what's happening to Uh, Palestinian people who are currently stuck in Gaza cannot get out of Gaza, are being told to move to areas of Gaza where they may be safe, but cannot find any area of Gaza where they may be safe. So that terrible situation has been sort of given voice by Labor ministers like Tony Burke, which then leads to an attack on, whether it's Tony Burke or Ed Husick or others, for sounding like they are too sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, when, let's face it, what they're sympathetic to is the plight of innocent people who are on the Palestinian side of this conflict but are bearing the brunt of civilian casualties. And I think it's important to note that those Labor ministers who are, I guess, sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinian people here, they're still not making any bones about the fact that they're condemning Hamas And they're condemning the way in which Hamas uses civilians as a human shield in this conflict.
0: Well, David, thanks as always for your excellent analysis. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Rachel. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by Chi Wong with technical assistance by Debbie Harrington. Our executive producer is Ruby Schwartz. Please Explain is a production of The Age and The Sydney Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search theage or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Rachel Clunn. This is Inside Politics from Please Explain. Thanks for listening.